This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Monday marks 20 years since the US invaded Iraq in what was originally called Operation Iraqi Freedom. Our nation enters this conflict reluctantly, yet our purpose is sure. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. We will meet that threat now. In the lead-up to that moment, President Bush had told the world that one of the main aims was to rid Saddam Hussein's regime of weapons of mass destruction, weapons that posed a clear and present danger to the world. As it turned out, once the troops went in, no such weapons were anywhere to be found. In 2011, the US withdrew its forces, leaving space for ISIS, or the so-called Islamic State, to form, and eventually American troops went back into Iraq. Brown University's Costs of War project calculated that the Iraq war led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. Of those, some 5,000 were US military personnel, but the overwhelming majority were Iraqi civilians. All this is history now, but for me it's also memory. I lived through the debate that led to Bush's announcement. Indeed, as a columnist for The Guardian, I was involved in it, like many on the paper, I wrote that the case for war pushed by both Bush in Washington and Tony Blair in London was badly flawed. I came under some pressure from the Blair team to change my position. They wanted me to follow the lead set by my counterparts in the US, liberal commentators who mainly backed the invasion. Two decades later, I speak to one of those writers who has come to regret his backing of the war. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. I was probably already having some conflicted feelings about the war, which I had supported. It was clearly an expression of the fact that Iraqis, most of them hated Saddam Hussein and were happy to be rid of him. But it also struck me as perhaps a reminder that America was engaged in this in ways that were not going to be necessarily very easy or simple. Peter Beinart is author of The Beinart Notebook, a weekly newsletter on Substack, and professor at the Newmark School of Journalism at the City University of New York. He was the editor of the New Republic magazine at the time of the invasion. 
Peter, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you with us. So let's go back to January of 2001, when we had a new administration taking over, the Bush administration. They had arrived at the presidency by the skin of their teeth following a ruling from the Supreme Court. It had been a deadlocked election in November 2000. The Bush people arrived. And even then, very early on, there were some people talking on the edges of the administration, but about Iraq and about regime change in Iraq. Where were you on that question right then? And I'm deliberately saying early in 2001, before the events of September the 11th, 2001. I think my view, which was shared by a lot of both Democrats and Republicans, was that it would be a good thing if Saddam Hussein were toppled. In fact, it was the Clinton administration, um, which had signed, I think, in 1998, something called, I think it was called the Iraq Liberation Act, where it basically made it U.S. policy that um, the U.S. wanted Saddam out of there. It was still fairly inconceivable at that point that the U.S. would actually do so through an actual war, that maybe the most was their suggestions, well, maybe the U.S. could somehow do more to support the Kurds, for instance, or perhaps even support some of the Shia in the South who were hostile to Saddam. So I think my view would have been that, yes, it would be great if Iraqis uh, overthrew Saddam and, and were able to create a better kind of government. But it was really would have been inconceivable to me at that point that the U.S. would have launched a full-scale war. And you would have, at that point, would you have opposed it if they had at that point? I think so, yes. I, I mean, it was almost in a way not really a topic of conversation that I think was was being raised. But I suppose, yes, I don't think that at that point I would have been, I would have thought it was fairly inconceivable. Yeah, no, I think it was, it was only talked about on the edges. That then changed after 9-11. And the you know, the drumbeat began pretty soon. I went, travelled to the United States soon after 9-11 and wrote a column having talked to people in Washington, which the headline of which was turning towards Iraq in November of 2001. It was pretty clear that that's what people were thinking. At that point, once 9-11 had happened and the, and it, the talk moved from the fringes to the centre of debate, how were you seeing it then? I think it was pretty clear that the, U that the U.S. was going to go into Afghanistan. Um, but I was, and the, new, the magazine I edited, The New Republic, was generally sympathetic after 9-11 to the idea that the U.S. should force some kind of confrontation with Saddam Hussein with the goal of, of toppling him. In, in retrospect, that was a really catastrophic kind of error in judgment of mine that I've spent uh, a lot of time and actually kind of wrote a book trying to wrestle with. But it was the product of a number of things. I think, first of all, there was the sense that Saddam was a problem that the United States did not know how to solve, not just because of his terrible human rights abuses, but because the U.S. had had this containment policy since the end of the Gulf War on the assumption that he had to be under some kind of sanction because if he were allowed to get all the oil revenue, he would go and rebuild weapons, a nuclear program in particular and other weapons of mass destruction, which he had had before the Gulf War. The other much broader subject that we could discuss more was, I think that by 
2002-2003, there was a, a culture of hubris in Washington that had really been building since the late 1980s, which vastly overestimated what the American military could do, overestimated how easy it was to create uh, democratic regimes, and was just afflicted with um, a kind of self-righteous lack of understanding the, uh, about the dangers of American imperialism. And I, I think, was afflicted with that hubris. I'm very um, struck by the fact that you're talking there about Washington rather than one party or other. And I suppose relevant there is what had just happened at the end of the previous administration. The Clinton administration had had more than one encounter in the Balkans. But in 1999, the war for Kosovo against uh, Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia, which had worked out pretty successfully uh, and had led to Bill Clinton, but also Tony Blair being hailed as kind of liberators by the Kosovan people. And my memory is that that led to a feeling that, yeah, maybe there's no limit to what we can do. And on the British end of the debate, particularly because we had a Labour government then, was this idea there's no limit to what we can do for good, so-called liberal interventionism. And in, it was in 1999, long before George W. Bush was around, that Tony Blair gave the famous Chicago speech where he unveiled this doctrine of liberal interventionism, which is this notion that if horrible things are going on, human rights abuses are going on, and a regime was punishing its own people, hurting its own people, then other countries had the right to go in there and protect those people. Finally realised standing aside was simply not an option. I would argue to you that today the impulse towards interdependence between countries is immeasurably greater. Is that part of the mix of this thing that you're talking about, about hubris? Or do you separate in your mind interventions like the Kosovo one from that hubristic mindset that you're describing? No, you are exactly right. And it actually starts building even a decade before Kosovo. You know, Ronald Reagan, although he's considered this enormously hawkish president, was very, very reluctant to send U.S. troops uh, into battle overseas because the legacy of the Vietnam War was still too strong. In the end of Reagan's presidency, he was pushed by some advisors to invade Panama, which he refused to do. But the story I would really start from when George H.W. Bush, the father, invades Panama, which many said would be another Vietnam and actually didn't. It turned out to be a fairly successful operation. Then you had the Gulf War, which most liberal elites in the United States, the New York Times, the, the Ted Kennedy said would be another Vietnam. And then the Gulf War, although it I don't want to whitewash it. There were huge numbers of innocent Iraqis killed, was a military success for the U.S. Then Clinton dithered, but ultimately intervened in Bosnia in 1995. Again, people said it would be Vietnam. And it looked, and in retrospect, that he had ended an ethnic cleansing. And then you were right. By 1999, this was getting momentum in both parties, as much in the Democratic Party in some ways as the Republican Party. And you're right. Blair was a critical ideological figure in making the case for this among liberal interventionists, the US and UK went to war in Kosovo without UN approval because the Russians and the Chinese wouldn't allow it. So we went outside the UN system, outside of international law, did it with NATO support. And again, the Kosovo Albanians seemed very, very grateful. People were slap path, you know, patting themselves on the back. And all of this 
you know, it's a little bit like Las Vegas. You go to Las Vegas, you put down a small bet and you win, and then you put down a bigger bet and a bigger bet and a bigger bet until you lose. And I think the story from Panama through Iraq is a little bit like that. The, the Vegas image is quite right. It was building and building because this was the period in which the United States was sort of shaking off what had been called Vietnam syndrome, which was this fearfulness, timidity about using force. And you mentioned Ronald Reagan as in some ways a part of that. Uh, this was the period in which it began to feel its sort of cojones a bit and think after the first Gulf War of 1991, yeah, we can do these things. And so perhaps this was the moment, the Iraq War, when that mentality went too far. Two other elements that were really crucial, one of which was that the economic boom in the United States of the 1990s erased the budget deficit, which meant that it seemed like the U.S. had money to spend. And historically, if you look at American foreign policy, it's often when the U.S. feels flush with money that it's less inhibited about these military campaigns. And then the last point was this massive third wave of democratization, which rolled through Eastern Europe, Latin America, parts of Asia and Africa, that made people believe that once you got rid of Saddam, it would be like Eastern Europe. You would have, you know, democratization kind of flourish in Iraq. And people looked at the Kurdish areas, which were kind of under U.S. protection, which did have a somewhat functioning democratic system and said, why can't all of Iraq be this way? Yeah, and all of it put together just led to this sort of hyper-confidence. This was the period where people were talking about America now as the sole superpower, even a hyperpower. Yes. And there was nothing that America couldn't do. Here's a sort of perhaps unexpected question. I wonder if part of your problem, in a way, was that you were insufficiently tribal and partisan. And I say that because when I examine my own reactions at the time, I wonder if partly why I was against this was that I was just so deeply sceptical of Republicans, that this was George W. Bush and the crowd I had seen behave, as far as I was concerned, appallingly during the Florida deadlock when they essentially cancelled a recounting of the vote, partly by storming a mini-riot, the so-called Brooks Brothers riot, where men in chinos, college Republicans, stopped a count of the vote. I thought these are people who are sort of appalling and therefore, I didn't believe a word that came out of their mouth for simple, quite tribal partisan reasons. And I've often asked myself, if it had been a sort of hypothetical third term Bill Clinton, who had said, for the same humanitarian reasons we moved in Kosovo, we're now going to do that here in Iraq. I just wonder if I'd have reacted differently. Instead, I was immediately sceptical. All the messages that were coming out of Washington in terms of weapons of mass destruction and all the rest of it. How come you, and quite, I don't mean to single you up because there were so many otherwise liberal commentators who would normally support Democrats and been hostile to the Bush administration, suddenly sort of dropped their usual partisan filter, if you like, and were ready to trust that Bush, Cheney, his vice president, were all operating in good faith? It's a great question. I think, look, for some of the Democrats, politicians, it was clearly a, they were politically scared because Bush was enormously popular after 9-11, and he was weaponizing this kind of nationalism, this stuff that you were, no one wanted to be called soft on terrorism. So you had people like many Democratic senators who would oppose the Gulf War in 1990, which was a much more modest effort, like John Kerry, who then supported the Iraq War, because the lesson for Democratic politicians of the Gulf War was it will end your political career if you vote against a war that turns out well, Al Gore and Joe Lieberman, who became the Democratic nominees in 2000, were not coincidentally two of the small number of Senate Democrats who had actually supported that war. 
That was among the politicians. That's, but I think it's you're making a fascinating point. One of the points is that Washington was actually not quite as partisan back then as it is now. And American foreign policy is always more bipartisan than American domestic policy. I mean, even if you look at Biden's China policy, which I'm not a fan of, it's actually continued many of Donald Trump's policies. So there's that element. But I think there were also then people who had more liberal credentials who vouched for it. So you mentioned Tony Blair. So Tony Blair was someone who Democrats and liberals in the United States identified with. And then there were a group of liberal interventionist intellectuals. I was one. I was kind of one of the junior members. But there were a lot of people who were older than me who I looked up to who also took that view. And I think that you're right. I should have said much more clearly, listen, even if I think this might have some merit objectively, or which I, in retrospect, it didn't, it didn't. But then do I really trust these people? First of all, they, they had never shown any interest in nation building, right? Um, uh, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney were hardly the kind of people who one necessarily believed cared that much about democracy. But I think there was the feeling, well, they're the people in power in, at, at this moment. And there was another element that actually had a lot of influence with me and others like me, which was the influence of a certain number of Iraqi exiles. I'm not talking about Ahmed Shalabi, this slightly kind of sleazy guy um, who was wheeling and dealing with the neocons, but the figure of Kanan Makia, who was a very impressive Iraqi dissident who had written about the horrors of Saddam and, and who talked about this as a kind of national liberation. I think that spoke to me and, and others like me and overrode what should have been uh, the kind of sensibility that you had, which is this is not a gang to be trusted, even if you believe that it was a virtuous effort. I take your point about partisanship on foreign policy. I think also what was easy for me to put to one side, perhaps, was just the sheer degree of emotional unity in the United States after 9-11. That me as a Brit sitting in London, it wasn't, it didn't work like that quite the same way. But there was this closing of ranks among Americans after 9-11, which maybe accounted partly for why that previous sort of more partisan impulse didn't kick in. But it was interesting your point about Blair and the impact that would have on you sitting in the United States, because there was an attempt to make the, the traffic work two ways. And I remember Tony Blair's Downing Street organised a dinner for the reluctant liberal commentators and columnists who were not yet on board with the war. And I was at that dinner and the speaker was Robert Kagan, who you might remember yes. famously wrote that essay, Americans are from Mars, Europeans are from Venus. And he was a, another liberal advocate of the war. At the time, the arguments that the administration were making uh, and the Blair administration were making, there was always this quite interesting difference of emphasis because from the Bush people, you would hear a lot about regime change in effect and liberating Iraqis from tyranny. We will bring freedom to the Iraqi people. Out of London, it was much more about weapons of mass destruction, that they are pointed this way, that they are dangerous. It's a clear and present danger. We have to do this to disarm Saddam Hussein. Of those two twinned arguments for, for invasion, which was the one that really pressed in on you? I mean, I think they both did in a kind of a complementary way. I think weapons of mass destruction, you know, is a, is a very problematic phrase in the sense that chemical and biological weapons are, are nowhere, not in the same ballgame as, as nuclear weapons. 
I think for me at that time, the thinking was, so we know that Saddam had been working very hard on a nuclear, trying to build a nuclear weapon up until the Gulf War. He seemed was closer than the U.S. had thought. Then there had been inspections. The inspections had kind of shut down. We didn't really have the eyes and ears on the ground. And it only was only logical that he would be rebuilding his nuclear program. And we had no idea how far away he would be given his appetite for risk. And there were, you know, there were others who were focused on the idea that he could give these weapons to terrorists. I don't think that was something that had as much of an impact on me. But I think it was the feeling that you had to do something because you had no mechanism to stop Saddam Hussein from getting a nuclear weapon. That would be intolerable. And there was no other way of stopping that. The other mechanisms that we had, the containment regime was kind of unraveling. I think that was the the very flawed logic, but it was the kind of logic that was most compelling to me at the time. I think what might be shocking for people who don't remember any of this is how much everything you're talking about was just the vocabulary of the time. It was front and centre where it was just dominant. And those, I remember you, you just referred to those UN inspections and the UN arms inspector Hans Blix. His name was on the news on every bulletin. People would talk about today's a Blix day because Hans <laughs> Blix was giving an update to the UN and it would be on every channel live, even in Britain people and all over the world, people would watch it. The world was kind of holding its breath, waiting for a judgment, a signal of, you know, if, Hans, if, for example, Hans Blick said there are weapons, that would be a cue for war. If he said, look, I've looked and there's nothing, that maybe would derail the the, the momentum towards war. It, it's just striking to think back now how uh, all-consuming in our kind of media conversation, in public conversation this was. And I remember it being at social gatherings, around family dinner tables, people would fall out about this stuff. Was there much more unity in the America of the time? Or were people, you know, really going at each other and at this argument back then in the United States as well? It's very important to to say that there were people who, um, uh, to their great credit, who despite this environment, uh, opposed the war. My, you know, even though the New Republic, which I edited, was very strongly pro-war, John Judas, one of my colleagues, was a dissenter. Um, there were people in Congress like Senator Robert Byrd or, 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 or Governor Howard Dean. I mean, there were people who were opposing this, but they didn't have a kind of critical mass in Washington. And I think that it's interesting. There were even conservatives who I think probably were privately somewhat skeptical because after all, if you're a conservative, you don't really believe the government can do anything right. It's kind of absurd to believe the government can go halfway across the world and topple a government and build a new one. But those conservatives, some of whom were in the first Bush administration, kept quiet. And then the last, the, I think the other point is, and you were getting at this earlier, there was an environment post 9-11 in the United States that made people prone to apocalyptic thinking. Um you know, it was it was 9-11. But remember, after 9-11, then there were these anthrax attacks, yes, which kind of freaked people out even more. You know, it's like, what's going on? What's going on here? This is where envelopes of white powder arrived on addresses on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. And people thought we are really under attack. A deadly form of anthrax. Rare inhaled form of anthrax. To be killed in a deliberate anthrax attack. Yes. And people just assumed, I mean, wrongly in retrospect, but assumed that there would be more terrorist attacks. And so, you know, maybe this had something to do with the fact that, you know, Americans are relatively cloistered. We're separated by two oceans. We have these benign neighbors. So perhaps for a country that had an expectation of unusually 
uh, elevated expectation of what security sh would be like from foreign enemies, the fact that it was pierced produced more of an apocalyptic response perhaps than in other places. Also, again, because America had this overwhelming power, there was the sense that, well, you could do something about it. But I think it was the, the discussion, particularly of Saddam's nuclear program, against the backdrop of that kind of apocalyptic environment. And it's funny, you know, people at the time didn't think they were being hysterical. You know, people hmm. at the time thought they were making, and myself, this kind of sober, rational assessment of dangers. But the truth is that that was in the background. And I think, and kind of within the conversation in a way that I don't think I didn't have the distance from it to recognize at the time. Uh, and we should say something here about the media, um, because there was a bit of an internal sort of inquest, particularly on the New York Times and others, about whether the media had been too credulous about some of the administration's claims, particularly about WMD, weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, after the invasion, there were no sign of. They just, nobody ever found any WMD. And I know that, you know, as I say, papers like the New York Times did wonder how had they got this wrong. What's your view of that? Because the Guardian newspaper was sceptical about the case for war. It was against it. And partly that was informed by news reporting, which said there were some, there were questions about the, the so-called intelligence, which said that there was WMD. Other papers in this country were all for it. But what's your view now, 20 years on, of how the U.S. media handled this episode? Well, I mean, I think there are different failures. One of them, I think, is you're right, is that there was not enough pressure put on these claims about weapons of mass destruction. Uh, there were honorable exceptions. Knight Ritter, for instance, which is a fairly small media service, actually was raising these questions. Part of the issue was that there was just an assumption that was shared by the U.S. And I think, to be fair, most other intelligence agencies and also by the Democrats and the people who've been in the Clinton administration. You know, someone like Ken Pollack, for instance, mm. who wrote a very influential book supporting the war, had been in the Clinton administration. And there was this assumption that, well, given everything we know about Saddam, of course he's trying to rebuild his weapons of mass destruction. That's the kind of guy he is. And I think because there was that assumption was so strong, the dissenting voices, there was one U.S. intelligence agency from the State Department, which was uh, somewhat more skeptical about these claims. And that wasn't the media didn't flesh that out because I think they became a lot of journalists also became part of this group think and they were reliant on their sources. And again, they didn't have Democrats raising these questions. And so it produced a kind of toxic group think that led that even as the, if people started to realize that some of the individual claims of evidence were not that strong, they the some way they thought, well, OK, maybe this particular piece of evidence isn't isn't a slam dunk, but it's just simply was taken for granted that this was the thing that Stom would be likely to do. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a classic case of sort of confirmation bias, because when Colin Powell famously appeared at the United Nations Security Council pre presenting this evidence, those people who were sceptical at the end of it thought, well, there wasn't much there, was there? Whereas those people who were persuaded in advance said, well, that was an absolutely comprehensive, unarguable presentation. And it, it just depended where you were starting. The facts in Iraqi's behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort to disarm as required by the international community. If I remember correctly, I think Saddam may have wanted people to think he did have a WDMD program. If I, I think the line that was used by Blix or one of the other inspectors was, you can have a beware of dog sign outside without having a dog. 
So I think there were even actually people quite close to the Iraqi regime who might have thought there was something there. That doesn't, ex but you're right. Given the magnitude of what was happening, the press and the members of, and Democrats and many others really failed to put enough pressure on these claims. Yeah, and at the time it did seem unimaginable this, that this guy who was facing the might of the United States and its allies did not just say, look, guys, I don't have these weapons, uh, which would have been the easy way out of him. Instead, he maintained the fear and he kept that beware of the dog sign up. So people assumed he had a dog. Let's just talk about events after the point where, whose 20th anniversary we are now marking. So the invasion has already happened. At what point did you start questioning your initial support for this? I think two things happened fairly early on. The first was that you know, the U.S. didn't find weapons of mass destruction, right, uh, on the ground. Um, and 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 there were people who kept on saying, no, we're going to find them, we're going to find them, we're making excuses. And that was a very big, big problem. That was one of the things that just made me, made it clear that the, you know, the rationale for, for the war was, uh, was collapsing, the central rationale. Uh, the other was that as the insurgency began to break out, again, it didn't take very long for this to happen. You know, people were some people were saying, well, you know, we, we, we made some mistakes. The Bush administration didn't handle this correctly in the aftermath of the war. And that was all true. But I think that over the course of 2003, and again, I bitter, deeply regret not having had these thoughts earlier. It just became clear that all, although it was true that many, many Iraqis, most Iraqis perhaps bitterly hated Saddam Hussein. It was also like it also was obvious that many of them bitterly hated an American occupation, which smacked for them, at, looked to them like a return to the Western imperialism of old. And, and it, that also became harder and harder to ignore, even as the Bush administration was saying, oh, it's a tiny number of people who are doing this. It just became more and more clear that even Iraqis who passionately detested Saddam Hussein did not want the United States there. Once you began to shift in your view as as events unfolded at what point did you feel it was now important to as it were sort of come out and say you know what i've got this wrong well after a certain period of time i i really felt like i had no choice for a number of reasons first of all on a personal level my sister-in-law who's a doctor in the army still is a doctor in the army was deployed to iraq had to leave her small daughter, and then was later deployed to Afghanistan, by which she, at point she had to leave her two small children. And I, I felt a tremendous amount of guilt for that. Um, you know, here I was living in Washington. I wasn't fighting. I wasn't suffering as a result of the war. My editor, my former boss, Michael Kelly, who was edit edited the New Republic and then was editor of The Atlantic, died covering the war. And it wasn't long until one started to see Iraq war veterans on the streets of New York and other cities as homeless. So at a very personal level, I started to feel I, what I can only sense is a sense of shame about my role in this. Intellectually, I felt like I had a massive problem because it wasn't just that I had been wrong about Iraq. Iraq was part of a whole worldview I had. I mean, I was a liberal interventionist. I was very much like Tony Blair in my views. And I didn't know how to continue to write about American foreign policy, given that this had, I had been so wrong. It wasn't a small mistake. It shook the, all of the assumptions that I had about American foreign policy were thrown up into question. I thought, well, unless I'm going to go do something else for a living, I have to, it's not just a question of apologizing. I have to rethink things kind of from the ground up 
And so I left the New Republic and went and wrote a book called The Icarus Syndrome, mm. which was about America's interventions in World War I, in Vietnam, and Iraq, which was basically an effort to try to understand the hubris that I had been complicit in and, um, and trying to come out the other side. It was only after writing that book and reading, uh, spending a lot of time thinking about figures like Reinhold Niebuhr and Walter Lippmann and Hans Morgenthau that others that I began to see perhaps an alternative way of thinking about America's role in the world. And 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 yet I wonder if you maybe, but but certainly many in the United States broadly on the liberal or left of the spectrum overlearned the lessons of that war. And I'm thinking particularly about Barack Obama not intervening in the Syrian case. And, you know, I would argue that the Syrian case in some ways was more egregious, more demanding of military action to, because the the people of that um, country did face an immediate threat to their lives. And we saw the death toll running to the many hundreds of thousands. And yet there was no appetite, certainly among liberals or Democrats, to say, let's go in and do what has to be done. Is it possible that after flying too close to the sun, per your Icarus syndrome um, argument, that actually there's been a withdrawing of the United States that in some ways maybe, I don't know whether it was equally unwise, but has its own problems and that we've seen played out in the in the decades since the mistake, uh, tragic mistake of the Iraq war? There were many who did make exactly that point. And Obama was very bitterly criticized, including from kind of liberal hawks, so, you know, and not uh, who didn't disappear in Washington on the Syria case. I don't see it that way. I, I think that, first of all, the United States would never have sent its own ground troops into Syria because there was Syria was not a threat. Was No one was making the case that Syria was a direct threat to the United States. It would have been more like Libya, um, where, you know, where maybe we provided some kind of air power. We were actually sending some tr mil weapons through the CIA to the Syrian rebels. But I think you also have to remember the legacy not only of uh, of Iraq, but the legacy of the Libya war, which was more of a, a classic humanitarian war that happened after Iraq. The Biden, the Obama administration was still um, willing to go along with the idea that because Omar Gaddafi was so terrible, and people who were, which he was, and and people Libyans were rising were rising up against him, um, that the U.S. with NATO should go in and basically give them the air support so they could topple uh, Libya. And the and many liberal internet interventionists were very much pushing this. But the the very bitter, bitter lesson of Libya, I would say, was a similar one to Iraq, which is that um, as hideous as Gaddafi was, as hideous as Saddam was, a failed state can be worse. See, what's happened to Libya since Gaddafi has probably been worse. A failed state, no function in government, a wash in weapons. And I think given that, and remember that, that you know, Bashir Assad was a monster. I don't think Obama could have confidently believed that overthrowing the Bashir regime would not have produced a failed state, a, fra a fragmentation. I don't, I personally do not think it was a case of Obama overlearning the lessons because I think there was very, there was good reason to be really wary of what was happening in Syria, even though what has happened in Syria without U.S. military intervention has been hideous as well. Uh, the wariness is what I'm interested in. You wrote a column back in 2007, where you said being a liberal as opposed to a neoconservative means recognising that the United States has no monopoly on insight or righteousness. Some Iraqis might have been desperate enough to trust the US with unconstrained power, 
but we shouldn't have trusted ourselves. Do you ever see, we, we've talked before of how long it took for America to shake off the so-called Vietnam syndrome. There may now be an Iraq syndrome. Do you ever see a time where you will believe that the US can be trusted and could be trusted to help in a situation where people are under, you know, under threat from their own brutal ruler, where you know democracy is absent? Are we ever going back to, the, in some ways, those youthful dreams you had 20 plus years ago that were dashed by the experience in Iraq? I hope not. I think that where I have landed uh, is in the belief in international law. I, I do. I am willing to support U.S. military interventions that are in accordance with international law because international law represents framework, but not a perfect, but a, a kind of framework that does not require us trusting uh, that we, unlike all the other human beings in the world, have some particular wisdom or righteousness just because we happen to be Americans. Within the context of international law, yes, I think America can play a really important role and America should be working hard to strengthen international law, but not outside of the framework. Doesn't that then mean unless Vladimir Putin is on board, he'll just wield Russia's veto at the UN and then it will be against international law, whatever action well, is proposed? perhaps. But remember, there's, there are many, many other things the United States can do to help in the world and strengthen uh, international law, which don't have to be at the barrel of a gun. This is part of the problem, is that America has spent so much of its focus and so much of its money and even its idealism at the, with the barrel of a gun. There's so much more that the U.S. can do uh, through cooperation and nonviolent efforts to try to help the world. We should be channeling our idealistic streak in that direction. And, you know, it's funny. People talk about the Iraq syndrome, but what I see in Washington today is not an Iraq syndrome. It's actually it's a bipartisan, extremely hawkish consensus on China in which there's very little conversation about the, the enormous, enormous catastrophic risks of U.S. war with China. Of the, of the risks of another McCarthyism, which I think has already started to break out in the United States here, vis-a-vis um, -vis Asian Americans and other people who are associated with the Chinese regime. I actually, I don't think we overlearned the lessons of Iraq. Very few people who had influential positions in Iraq have lost their, their influential roles in the, in the Washington media or have fundamentally rethought. I think that the problem is we still have not sufficiently learned the lessons of Iraq. Yeah, but you yourself have given great thought uh, to that and you you're unusually and admirably candid about that and willing to be self-critical and for being uh, so honest but also insightful uh, with us i'm really grateful peter Beinart. thanks so much for talking to us on politics weekly america thank you and that is all from me for this week listen out for other guardian podcasts covering 20 years since the start of the iraq war i spoke to my colleague john harris for Thursday's episode of Politics Weekly UK, all about the British experience of that lead-up to war, as well as the reverberations felt in the two decades since. Today in Focus on Monday, we'll explore the relationship between Khaith Abdul Ahad and James Meek, both Guardian correspondents who met in the days after the fall of Baghdad. Khaith's audio long read on what it felt like to be an Iraqi in those first few months after the US invaded will also be out on Monday. So search for those wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. 
The producers were Daniel Stevens and Hattie Moyer, and the executive producer, Maz Eptage. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. The wait is over and we are back for series two of Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph. We'll dive into the biggest pop culture stories of the week again from Meghan and Harry. And this is why sort of turning Harry and Meghan into polarising figures ticks a lot of boxes because it just drives clicks. To Rihanna. Rihanna rocks up at about one she just swans in like she's the most ordinary person in the world just running a couple of minutes late and of course the chaos of my life i meet someone i show my friend they're like mm, yeah it's okay four weeks later i'm sliding down the wall crying <laughs> one week later i message my friends i met you guys this is how i dated 11 people in one year listen now wherever you get your podcasts 